Please be seated. We have been in a series on the book of Revelation, kind of on and off in the fall. A couple of weeks that we departed from that, but we have come back as we continue to look at the letters to the churches in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. And there actually is a really good Advent tie-in here because Advent was never intended to just be pre-Christmas. We, we light our candles and we put our decorations around, but Advent means coming. And it's a time to consider that Christ has come, yes, in Bethlehem as a baby. It's a time to remember that Christ has promised that he will come again. And that will come out very much in the text that we're considering together this morning, Revelation chapter three. I will be reading verses one, through six. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. About six centuries before Jesus addressed this letter to the church at Sardis through the apostle John who saw this vision, the town of Sardis had experienced a siege Croesus, a Lydian king, was under attack by Cyrus, the king of Persia, and had actually managed to defeat him outside the walls of Sardis. But shortly thereafter, Cyrus used the strategy of driving off all of the horses so that the Lydian cavalry couldn't be cavalry, excuse me, could not be brought to bear, which changed the balance of power. So Croesus decided it was discretion being the better part of valor that he would retreat to the Acropolis just outside the city of Sardis. That's the picture that you're seeing, an ancient fort at the top of the hill, which in those days, when it was well defended, was considered to be more or less impregnable. And Croesus believed that that would be the case. He thought that with his troops and soldiers gathered around him in that fortress, eventually Cyrus would just give up the siege and go home. Cyrus did make several attempts to make it up the hill, which were all very, very costly in terms of soldiers. When you're attacking high ground uphill against walls at the top, it is a very difficult military problem. And that's exactly what the Persians were doing in their attack. But Cyrus, not to be deterred, let it be known to his troops that if any soldier could devise a way of taking the Acropolis at less cost than what it was going to be given their current strategy, he would reward that person greatly. 
So there was one soldier, as the story is told through ancient historians, which we're never 100% sure exactly how accurate that might be. But as the story is told, one soldier just sat for a lengthy time at the bottom of the hill and watched, looking for some evidence that there was a way for the city to be taken. And at one point he noticed some movement and what he saw was one of the soldiers from the fort at the top of the hill coming down what appeared to be a hidden path to retrieve a helmet that he had dropped. Marking the place where the path seemed to go, that soldier then took a squad of Persian, Persian soldiers up the hill, realized that the wall at that point was completely undefended because the Lydans had assumed that no one would be able to find it. So they rallied the army, which then went up the hill at night, swarmed over the wall and overthrew the army and took Croesus captive um, to King Cyrus. In their sleep, in their lack of watching, the Lydans allowed a foe to come into the city and to overthrow. This is a strategy that shows up in history from time to time. If you remember that night when the Babylonians had gathered and were eating and drinking from the vessels that had been stolen or looted from the house of God in Jerusalem and the handwriting on the wall, many, many, tekel, yuparsen, um, that very night Babylon was overthrown by the Persians. Um, and they did it again at night by damming up a river which opened a path under the wall through a water gate so that their soldiers could go in by stealth and overthrow the city. These attacks come at points that remain undefended because assumptions are made that they don't need to be defended and they often come at night. It's believed that the Acropolis of Sardis only fell twice and on both of those occasions it fell by infiltration and it fell at night, which may explain the admonition, the warning that Jesus gives at the beginning of Revelation chapter three, verse two. There, Jesus cautions the angel of the church or the minister of the church at Sardis and through him, the church, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. One could imagine Croesus giving the same admonition to his soldiers had he only had the chance on the night that the Acropolis fell. Wake up, pay attention, be on your guard. There's an enemy out there and that enemy, enemy wants to overthrow us. We talked about that last week and the week before and it'll come up again that we have enemies. Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I just want to make the point that sometimes when we see things happening around us and we see things happening in our society, we, we, we know that our battle is not with flesh and blood, it is with principalities and powers, with spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. But those spiritual forces of wickedness make use of very mundane means. In the letter to the church at Smyrna, as we'll see in just a moment, Jesus said, the devil is about to throw some of you into jail. Well, we know for a fact that Satan didn't show up with his pointy horns and pitchfork at the doors of Christians dragging them off and throwing them into jail. He used the Roman authorities 
and he used the laws that were passed at the time against the people of God. Paul was doing the same thing when he went to Antioch to arrest Christians and to throw them into jail. He was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, he says in his letter to Timothy. He was doing Satan's work, going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But to understand Jesus' call to the church to wake up, first we have to understand the nature of the sleep. And of course, the text itself tells us, I know your works. Jesus is looking at the fruit that is being born by the church at Sardis or not being born by the church at Sardis. And as with Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, this has to do with theology, but theology that has very practical implications. I know your works, Jesus said. But where the problems at Ephesus were perhaps relatively small, that descending scale that we noticed last week takes another step here. In Ephesus, Jesus said, you have left your first love. Repent and do the works you did at first. To Pergamum, he said, I know that there are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans. And at Thyatira, he said, not only are there some among you who hold to those teachings, you actually tolerate a false prophetess who is teaching and seducing my servants to commit immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. There's this slide from just slipping a little bit like Ephesus had done to tolerating some who hold to false teaching, to tolerating false teachers, and now to Sardis, a church whose life and faith have reached the point where Jesus says you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Well, and some of you will get where I'm going here, mostly dead anyway, to borrow an expression from William Goldman's The Princess Bride with all dead. There's nothing you can do but go through their pockets for loose change. But here, Jesus extends a call Wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. But again, this is practical, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You have not finished the race, as Paul would point out to Timothy. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, like it says in the book of Hebrews. You have not done all that I created you and redeemed you to do, so wake up. I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Wake up and strengthen what remains. Paul wrote something very similar to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. Besides this, Paul said, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now given that passage from the book of Romans, together with the cultural and geographic proximity of the churches that are addressed in the book of Revelation, we can assume that the issues at Sardis were not dissimilar to those at Pergamum and Thyatira. False doctrine, the false teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans had taken hold in the church. Balaam, if you remember from the stories back in the Old Testament and also from the description that's given earlier in the book of Revelation, had seduced God's people. You might remember the king had called him to come up on the mountain and curse Israel. And every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, God intervened and prevented him from doing it, and Balaam ended up blessing Israel. But we find out from other sources and from the New Testament that having been thwarted in cursing Israel in that way, Balaam came up with another idea. Just get your people to mix and mingle with Israel. Get them to marry your daughters and and your sons take their daughters in marriage. Get them to worship at your idols and to engage in that false worship that so characterized the Canaanites and the Midianites and the Moabites and all of those groups of people. Just get them to go along. Get them to syncretize, to, to synthesize the truth of God's covenant with this false teaching and, and you'll have them. And so Balaam and the Nicolaitans who were a Gnostic group from the first century infiltrated the doctrine of the church and as the doctrine tended away from the pure gospel, so did the lives and the works of the people. False doctrine leads inevitably to disobedience and unfaithfulness, just as disobedience and unfaithfulness leads inevitably to false doctrine. And so Jesus gives his call, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. What would that look like? Well, we saw Paul in Romans described it as casting off or putting off the works of darkness and putting on the armor of light. In another place, Paul said, be clothed in Christ. And that has implications for where Jesus is going here in the book of Revelation. Jesus further described the process in this letter to Sardis saying, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Even so, what you received and heard, the Apostle John had spoken of this in his first epistle, writing in 1 John chapter 1, the beginning. And listen how he characterizes it. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. We proclaim it so that you can hear it and receive it. And so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jude, the brother and servant of Jesus, described it as we saw last Lord's Day, as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In our Reformed context here, I think I have to take a minute to make the point because we sometimes say we are always reforming, and that's true. 
Reformed churches, churches in the Reformation tradition have that aspect that we are always to be reforming. That doesn't mean that we are always moving on from the faith once delivered to the saints to the next big new thing and then on from there somewhere else. What it means is that we are constantly reevaluating our practice in the light of God's word and of an orthodox understanding of God's word. We are reforming the line. There's a brilliant moment in Peter Jackson's film, um, I can't remember which one of the three, where the riders of Rohan have just defeated this whole army of, of orcs, and then they see those big war elephants coming at them. And the king calls, reform the line. That's how we need to understand reformation. We go into battle, we get into disarray. Sometimes we're going different directions. But there is this constant call to reform the line. Jude said, I felt the need to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And that faith is nothing less than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the word of God revealed in paradise proclaimed by and to the holy patriarchs and prophets, portrayed in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law, and finally fulfilled and spoken through Jesus Christ himself, the word who was God, and given to us to set us completely free and to make us right with God. This is the gospel. It's no wonder then that we are to contend for this faith, to not let it slip away, to not let it be overwhelmed by false teaching and false practice which can never save because it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. No wonder the Lord comes along to a church that has the reputation of being alive but is dead and says, wake up. Remember then what you have received and heard, keep it, and repent. So the call here is the same as it was to Thyatira. In Thyatira, Jesus had said, behold, I will throw her, Jezebel, that false prophetess, I will throw her and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. To Pergamum before that, he had said very simply, therefore, repent, and even to Ephesus, that church where there was so little apparently wrong. He said, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Again, it should not surprise us that this is Jesus' message to the church because this is God's message to the world. It's a message that John the Baptist proclaimed to the people of Israel from the banks of the Jordan, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the message of the apostles. They were instructed to go out and proclaim repentance and the kingdom of God. It was the message of Jesus himself. The very first characterizations we have of Jesus preaching, he was saying the exact same thing as John the Baptist, repent, because the kingdom of God has come. It's his message not only throughout the Gospels, but throughout the epistles. As Paul said in Acts chapter 17, we looked at this weeks and weeks ago now, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now 
he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, but now God comes along and commands everyone to repent. And Paul's reason, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul's reason for God calling all people everywhere to repent is the same reason that Jesus gives here in Revelation chapter three. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent if you will not wake up. And here's our Advent tie-in. If you will not wake up, I will come. These are the words of Jesus. I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come against you. See, we've emphasized for a couple of weeks now, and especially last Sunday, that if Satan cannot destroy a church from the outside, he will join it. There's a quote that I have seen. I did a little research. I've seen it attributed to everyone from Martin Luther to J. Vernon McGee, of all people. But it said, when the devil fell from heaven, he fell into the choir loft. And sometimes that appears to be true. He infiltrates, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, says the apostle Peter. And Peter calls us to the same watchfulness. Be watchful and alert to his schemes. But that's not what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis. He is not warning us that Satan is out there like a roaring lion seeking our devour. He's not saying, wake up, be watchful, or Satan will come and destroy you. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come. I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Satan, of course, is no threat, none at all, to those who stand in faith. To the church at Smyrna, Jesus said, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Just don't be afraid of it. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus said, don't be afraid. The devil's gonna persecute you. He's gonna even throw some of you into prison. Don't worry about it. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And to Sardis, he's not saying it is Satan who will come like a thief in the night. To Sardis, it's not Satan who's gonna slip over those unguarded walls like Persian soldiers in the days of Croesus. It's Jesus who promises to come in judgment against a church that is resting on a reputation from a bygone day. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. We might be reminded of the parable in which Jesus said something very similar, encouraging the disciples to remain faithful. He said in Luke chapter 12, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes back. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them 
If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus says to the church at Sardis, the church who has a reputation of being alive but is dead, wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. Repent. Hold on to that word that was proclaimed to you and do those works or I will come. But this is not meant to cause fear. It's not meant to cause shame. It's not meant to cause discouragement. Quite the opposite. Because even at Sardis where they had the reputation of being alive but were dead, even there Jesus said, yet you still have a few names in Sardis people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And at first, this might sound a little like Jesus is saying it's all up to us to be good enough, to be pure enough, to be holy enough. But the reference to the white garments, and this is what we have to do as we go through this book of Revelation, nothing is random. And the reference to the white garments here gets explained in chapter 7. There John sees a vision of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then John went on, One of the elders addressed him, John, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and where have they come from? John said to him, Sir, you know. And the elder said to John, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. See, it's not possible for us to keep our own garments pure and white. It's not possible for us to be the perfect, holy people that we are actually called to be in Christ. We were born in sin. And furthermore, we have all, says the prophet Isaiah, become like one who is unclean. And even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, a soiled garment in the parlance of Revelation, like filthy rags, and I'm not going to go into the Hebrew there. It's not pleasant. Even our best, our righteous deeds, the best that we, you know, there are songs, I I, got to pick on Christmas songs or it won't be Christmas, but, you know, I played my best for him, pa-rumpa-pum-pum, right? The very best that we might offer God is like filthy rags. The prophet says we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind to take us away. And at the very point where we trust in our own righteousness and holiness and purity and works, we are lost. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Wash your robes. They're soiled. Trust me. 
all of our robes are soiled. So wash them and make them white, but not with the bleaches and dyes of self-righteousness. Rather, wash them white in the blood of the Lamb. And how counterintuitive, right? To make something white by washing it in blood. How contrary to our understanding. But in Isaiah, God said, Come now, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But that stain, that defilement of sin can only be removed by what one old hymn writer called the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb. Again, if you have heard that somehow the atonement of Christ's blood is not something that we emphasize anymore because that people find that gross and offensive and... and we do, and we have to. Because that's the only way that we can be cleansed is through the blood of the Lamb. We've touched on this a couple of times recently, but I really don't think we can hear it too often. Because the accuser of the brothers, as Satan is described in Revelation chapter 12, more on that in just a couple of weeks, the accuser of the brothers never stops. He is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. And sometimes I think we are quick to listen to those accusations because as it says in question and answer 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism, even my conscience, my own conscience, accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never and of never having kept any of them and I am still inclined toward all evil. If you think that does not describe you, you need to come face to face with the word of God and the call of the gospel because that describes all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that being true and it is for all of us, it might seem like the deck is stacked against but whether it is the accuser of the brothers or a brother who is an accuser or even our own consciences that are making those accusations, the answer is the same. Because our soiled garments are not washed by our works, by our goodness, by the things that we do. They are washed and made white when they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. When we turn to Jesus Christ alone in repentance and faith, he makes us his own. And then when the accuser puts his finger in our face and says, you are guilty, you know what we can do? We can joyfully agree, yes, I am. Even my own conscience accuses me. But then we can put our finger in his face, saying, and you can say it with a smile. Nevertheless, without my deserving it at all out of sheer grace. Without my deserving it at all. Out of sheer grace. God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner 
as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. I was just talking about this with someone this past week, and I will say to all what I said then. Memorize this one. If you don't memorize anything else, from the Heidelberg Catechism. Memorize this one and the verses that it's based on. If you can't memorize it, you need to write it down and carry it around in your pocket or your wallet. If you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, if you are not leaning on your own works, your own righteousness, your own deeds, if you have repented and looked in faith to Jesus Christ alone, then it doesn't matter anymore. Not what your own conscience says, not what the devil himself thinks. It doesn't matter. What matters is that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. When God looks at you, he says, that's my boy or that's my girl. That one belongs to me, body and soul, in life and in death. And that's how we overcome. That's how we conquer. That's how we gain the victory, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Again, as it says in Revelation chapter 12. And to the church at Sardis, and to everyone who has ears to hear, the call remains, remember then. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And the one who conquers will be thus clothed in white garments. Hear it. Believe it. Live it. This is the word of the Lord. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before my angel, or his angels. And as I said just a moment ago, that means if you belong to Christ, if you have trusted in him, if he is your savior and your Lord, it does not matter what the accuser has to say. All that matters is that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we pray.